So we are now ready to start with our commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the chapter 6 and we are going to start with uh, strophe number 10, with the shloka number 10. In this chapter, Krishna describes further on the conditions of enlightenment, the conditions that define spirituality and karma yoga. And as I announced last time, just before ending the session, Krishna actually is about to define another technique. Bhagavad Gita is not a treatise of yoga in which techniques of yoga are described. Exception made that we can say that the whole of Bhagavad Gita talks about karma yoga, so it describes the technique of karma yoga. Plus that in the chapter number 5, Krishna describes a technique of focusing on Ajna Chakra on the third eye, which is very specific and which is one of the core techniques in Indian spirituality. In the chapter number 6, again Krishna, apparently without any connection to the thing mentioned in chapter 5, is again going to describe something which sounds like a yoga technique. And as I said already several times, when you analyze this kind of techniques which are given in the Bhagavad Gita, you discover that they are very different, they are, they are archaic techniques, very simplified techniques, which actually address to a different kind of human being. They address to human beings living in another yuga, human beings that have never watched television, human beings that never read a printed book, human beings that don't have access to media and endless excitation or excitement of the nerves and of the brain, another kind of human beings for which the technology was described in a different way. It is a clear statement of the Indian spirituality that spiritual technology changed time and again and for example, the last type of spiritual technology, which is most adequate to the, India, to the modern man, is actually the tantric type of spirituality. By tantric, not understanding the sexual subdivision of it, by tantric understanding an engineering like yoga, technically accurate, based on energies, chakras, and some sort of technical precision. And uh, that is because the modern human beings have become very rational and they are clinging to some details. While as you saw and as you see every time when you study this kind of text and ancient tradition, even the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is written some 2000, 2500 years ago, is written in a very fuzzy way, without a teacher and the proper commentary. Yoga Sutra is just a sacred cow. It's a monument of the past, but practically there is very little that a modern disciple can do from the Yoga Sutra in the way it is written. Why? Not because Yoga Sutra it is bad, but because it uses a mentality and a technology which are adapted to people that lived 25 centuries ago. Bhagavad Gita is at least a thousand years older than the Yoga Sutra, and that simply says it addresses to a mentality which is very, very archaic, and because of that, the yoga techniques are not like the yoga techniques from Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita is a tantric text, which is one of the main sources for asanas and hatha yoga in the West, and Geranda Samhita is most probably published somewhere or written down first time sometime in the 16th century AD. It's a medieval tantric text of India. A medieval text from the 16th century sounds completely different from a text which is written in the 16th century BC. That means 3000 years before that. So let us see exactly how this sounds. We start with the shloka number 10, where 
Krishna starts describing in two shlokas a very sketchy technology. Number 10 reads, Let the yogi try constantly to keep the mind steady, remaining in solitude, alone, with the mind and the body controlled and free from hope and greed. Many conditions. Again, the first line is, let the yogi constantly keep the mind steady, collect himself, be recollected, remaining in solitude alone. So, the first thing is, keep the mind concentrated. On what? Keep the mind concentrated on the third eye, keep the mind concentrated on a mantra, keep the mind concentrated on a black dot drawn on the wall. It doesn't say, Krishna doesn't mention where should you keep your mind concentrated, although in the next strophe he comes with some addition. But in this one, he simply says, let the yogi try constantly to keep the mind steady. So it all starts as a prolonged exercise in mental concentration, but it is not mentioned exactly on what or what sort of mental concentration. Remaining in solitude alone. Double mentioned. In all the translations, it is remaining in seclusion alone. It's two conditions. It's remaining in solitude and alone. But if you are in solitude, aren't you alone? Not really. It's a psychological thing because you can be in solitude and the world can be with you in your cell, in your room. So this is remaining in solitude and alone while being in solitude, not cultivating memory and phantasms of the world, being alone. This denotes a formidable detachment, like you are alone, simply you want to be alone, and remaining in solitude. Again here Krishna, as sometimes very clearly he does, although his thinking is definitely not so, but very often Krishna, or better said the author of the Bhagavad Gita, leans towards highly ascetic practices. This is a typical ascetic practice. It says you live in solitude alone. This is for hermits. This is for people who are loners. This is for people who go into contemplation, in lonely contemplation. This is the idea and basically tells us a lot. If you do not cultivate this solitude, this aloneness, then automatically your mind is going to be more and unstable, polluted with the memories and desires of the world. First condition was keep the mind steadily concentrated. Second condition was be in solitude alone, therefore practicing inner and outer solitude. With the mind and body controlled, which is of course the body needs to be controlled because you stay in meditation, you go alone and then you start having fever, you start having diarrhea, you start having all sorts of psychosomatic reactions in which you hysterically ask for attention, you do a hundred thousand other things and actually your body is not controlled. The most simple lack of body control is that somebody very bravely says, I'm going to do 10 days of meditation, and they can't sit up straight even three hours. After two hours, they are already a wreck. They have pain in the back. They have purifications. They have this. These are naive people who think they are Milarepa, and they are ready to do the big things in one go. And that is why, of course, the mind and the body need to be controlled because you can be focusing the mind, you can be in solitude alone, and yet you are so green in yoga, you are so young and so unexperienced that you actually do not have control over the body, you do not have control over the mind. So Krishna says, when somebody who is a bit experienced does that, somebody who is fulfilling those two conditions, and the third is, with the mind and the body, subdued, controlled, 
at least to a certain extent, and free from hope and greed. Free from greed is actually without possessions. The word used is aparigraha, exactly like in the Yoga Sutra, and therefore aparigraha means non-attachment. So free from greed actually is being in a state of detachment, of non-possessiveness. But it also says free from hope, a more precise or a more an alternative expression of that will be we expecting nothing, without expectation. This is already a very dry, I would dare say Vedantic in character type of meditation. It's very severe, it's very strict. You must control your mind and body. You must concentrate for a long time. You must be alone and you must live in solitude. Cultivate inner loneliness and outer loneliness as well. And you must cultivate aparigraha, no possessions, no attachment, and expect nothing as well. In this environment, expecting things creates what we would call wishful thinking. And wishful thinking makes that somebody dwelling in their mind becomes very much a victim of their own illusion. You expect to do this meditation and Krishna to come and you and crown you with a laurel crown because you are such a good yogi and you are doing what Krishna said. And if you expect that, then after doing this meditation for 75 days, you are going to have a fever and in the middle of that fever you are going to have a delirium and in the middle of that delirium produced by fever you are going to have a vision of Krishna in a halo of golden light coming to you and saying now you are a great yogi go and baptize people in my name or whatever Krishna tells you that's wishful thinking it's something which no serious practitioner would take for granted Every serious practitioner would shrug their shoulders and say, probably I had a hallucination, like not taking it too seriously, precisely because of this, expecting nothing. In some forms of yoga, in some visualizations, you expect something. For example, people meditating with the Shakti powers, with the cosmic powers as we call them, they may expect something. If Ramakrishna was meditating with Kali, he was expecting the grace of Kali. But that's a different lineage and a different practice. That's a tantric meditation with mantra, with visualization, trying to achieve a form of telepathic contact with a great cosmic power. It's a totally different story. In this meditation, this is a no imaginative imagination. It's a no prakriti type of meditation. It's a very dry meditation immediately by the way it starts. So many characteristics are like this is one of those strict Vedantic types of meditation. And on number 11 he continues, in a clean spot having established a firm seat of his own the word which is used here is asana, so it can be interpreted in two ways, we get there. Neither too high or not too low, made of a cloth, a deer skin and, a kusha, and some kusha grass, one over the other. Here we have a description which starts going into some incredible details, some of them very weird. In the Geranda Samhita, a much, much later text, which is therefore much more prone to details, Geranda, first of all, before describing the practice of yoga, he says, you should build uh, yourself a hut, and it should not be in the village, it should be in the jungle, away from the people's habitation. This hut should be made of clay, blah, 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 describes a very simple thing, and you should make a floor which should be plastered with cow dung so that cockroaches and all sorts of parasites, centipedes and I don't know what, they don't go into your floor and they don't crawl over your floor because it is considered that the cow dung through its smell has a bit of an acid antiseptic effect and the insects don't like it. 
and the cow dung is of course holy being a cow product in India and all this. Like Geranda before describing pranayama and things, he says you should have a clay hut placed at a certain distance from villages, it should be plastered with cow dung and gives a lot of details. Funnily enough, there is an echoing of that in a much earlier text in the Bhagavad Gita, where suddenly the place where the yogi meditates is described. He doesn't speak about the position of the body. He just spoke about the mental conditions, be with aparigraha, be without expecting anything and all that which I said. And now it says, in a clean spot. Interesting that it is mentioned there, in a clean place. Outer cleanliness, inner cleanliness. It is one of the statements which you find often in meditation places, especially the Zen Buddhists are classical. Everybody knows that the image of the typical Zen Buddhist meditation temple is that it is immaculately clean. Like the Zen monks spent part of their precious time, they could sit down and meditate, but spent part of their precious time scrupulously cleaning everything. They consider that a symbol of the inner purification, outer cleanliness triggers inner cleanliness. And here Krishna, paradoxically, in the Indian environment, where many people would not care about many such details, Krishna nevertheless, in the second strophe describing the meditation practice, he says, in a clean spot, having established a firm seat of his own, and then he continues, neither too high or not too low, made of a cloth, a deer skin and kusha grass. Obviously when he makes, speaks about a seat, although the word used is asana, there is a double entendre. The first meaning is having established a firm asana of his own. The yogis traditionally considered the most firm asanas, the cross-legged meditation postures. Svastikasana. Siddhasana and especially Padmasana, the lotus pose, these are the quintessential stable postures of the yogis. So when somebody says, having established a firm posture of your own, it means also to be able that in this meditation which Krishna is describing, you should be able to sit in an appropriate position, like of course, a loose position is not recommended, is not what Krishna has in mind. But also, the sentence continues and it says, Having set a firm seat, neither too high nor too low, made of a cloth, a deer skin and kusha grass. Obviously, he talks about a location, a place. There is a lot of theory in India about this one Commentaries over commentaries have been made and a lot of idiosyncratic, a lot of histrionic and theatrical things, a lot of weird interpretations as, law, as well as more sane interpretations are coming from this. Like if you give to people a little bit to chew, people will take it and develop it to incredible stuff and all that. Such as, for example, the mentioning of the kusha grass. Kusha grass is a form of grass which grows in India. It may be that in Thailand they don't have kusha grass, or in Germany surely probably they don't have kusha grass. It means you cannot use the technique of Krishna if you do it in Canada or some place. It's ridiculous. It's not really the kusha grass which matters. But there are people that have taken this to obsessive levels. That the kusha grass has a sort of a radionic frequency, like let's interpret it in top edge science. Those people might have not used the word radionics, but I use it because that's the scientific angle, the parapsychologic angle to it. And it's like the kusha grass 
is a sort of insulator and when you make a layer of crucia grass under your blanket and under your deer skin or tiger skin, then automatically this filters the terroric energy of the earth and maybe bounces back some of the cosmic energy. It's all sort of speculation that the kusha grass is a sort of radionic seat, is a just a preferential energy seat and so on. And if it's another grass, it won't work. And if you, you cannot do the Krishna technology and maybe you are going to get burned out or burned down or something if you do this. There exist all sorts of superstitions starting from just this simple thing that Krishna and the text of Bhagavad Gita starts mentioning some concrete things. And the concrete things are that you establish a firm seat. Okay, clearly. It should be firm. Some people say you should not sit on something soft. Which of course it is true because meditation on a very soft surface makes your bottom sink into the mattress, makes your feet tilt up a little bit, and then you meditate in a very inaccurate position. So sitting on, on a surface which is relatively hard, and if then you put a pillow under your bottom, like they do in Zazen, then automatically this creates a certain obtuse angle between the axis of the legs and the axis of the body, the spine, and uh, this favors the sublimation of energy, and the energy does not slide and get stuck in Muladhara and Svadhisthana chakra, and a lot of stuff is there. That means once you catch this kind of thread, you can start splitting the hair and going into details and details. Why should the seat be firm? Again, we are not saying that somebody should not meditate on a firm seat. But sometimes firm can be painful. For example, there is a person that is very skinny. That person has the hip bones very proeminent. Even the pelvic bones and in the area of the buttocks, the bones are sticking a little bit too much because that person is really sticky. You take a person that is bony and put them sit on a cement slab, it's going to be torture during the meditation. It's a very intelligent thing for such a person to have a specially profiled cushion which would take away the pressure and the bruises resulted for a skinny person sitting on an ultra-hard surface. So that's why when you start thinking about it rationally, you see that these are orientative things, that a hard seat means, simply means sit on something stable. I have seen people meditating in sand. For example, Tibetan lamas, they make a sandbox and they sit in that sandbox. So basically they meditate sitting on sand. But sand, is it firm? In a way, yes, it is stable. But it's not firm in the meaning that it can get soft under you and you get a hollow which takes exactly the shape of your body and it can feel very comfortable after all. The sand is one of the most primitive compromises for creating a soft surface for sitting on. That's why, please be careful of not interpreting these things too literally and too absurdly, because Krishna wants to say simply, uh, to give a general air. He simply gave a lot of psycho-mental conditions, and he says, in a clean place, making a firm seat, like make a seat for meditation. This seat for meditation can mean a good blanket, or one of the pillows which you use, a cushion, or a blanket folded in four, or something which is convenient enough depending on your physical condition. There are people who are taught to meditate, and the first who brought this to the West was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the Transcendental Meditation. They said Westerners are not used to sit cross-legged and they get numb legs if they sit cross-legged for too long time but they can very well sit on a chair. So taking a very comfortable chair with a vertical back, you can sit in the so-called Egyptian position, like the Egyptian gods sit, like seated on a throne, and with your spine straight, and sitting on a chair, you can do one hour of excellent meditation, 
although you are incapable to do Padmasana or maybe even Siddhasana for one hour or something like that. And that is why, again, take it with a pinch of salt as it is said, um, having a firm seat is simply a very Indian thing. You see many yogis in India having a platform, even here we carry this tradition in which I am not sitting on a sofa or something, but they made for me a sort of a weird bed looking like. That's an Indian tradition. The gurus from India sit on things like this, and it's apparently a tradition as old as the Bhagavad Gita. Have a seat of your own, neither too high nor too low. Common sense, again, Krishna talks to the common sense. Like if you make a seat which is one centimeter uplifted, then that's not really a seat. You are not really outlining a, a surface. Like for example, the dice here on which I sit. No, it's neither too high nor too low. It's a bit of a compromise. And traveling through India and other places where this is practiced, I have seen so many examples of seats on which the yogis are staying. So, a seat, neither too high nor too low, a firm seat, common sense, really, made of a cloth, a skin, and, a, and kushagras, one over the other. This is opening Pandora's box, because what cloth? Then there come people and say, if you are sitting on a woolen blanket, the woolen blanket has too much animal frequency to it, and it's going to perturb your muladhara chakra, and it should be linen or cotton or this or that. Actually, Krishna doesn't mention it, and here we are going into impossible details, which sometimes are without any relevance. Please realize that if Ramakrishna meditates, either his ass is on kusha grass or not, he still goes in samadhi. If Milarepa meditates, either there is a deer skin or a tiger skin or a dinosaur skin under his bum, he still goes in samadhi. These are jokes that I have met books, but they are books specially consecrated to the tantric magic and things like this, where authors would say, if you perform this and that mantra, and you are seated on a woolen blanket, or if you are seated on a tiger skin instead of being seated on a deer skin, and some stuff like that, then the mantra will go bad with a seat, and you are going to get some very noxious effect, and you might even get burned out very badly, because you do this mantra on this kind of seat. While I am ready to be lenient towards this line of thought because yes everything has an energy and everything matters and indeed even i can feel it that sitting on a woolen blanket is feeling in some way and sitting on sitting on a cotton something or on a linen something it on, on a hemp cloth it feels in a different way and it's quite obvious while that in itself is true, pushing it to extreme distances, like, no, you cannot meditate on God, you cannot pray to God if you sit on wool. That is simply denying the omnipotence of the cosmic consciousness. Maybe if you work with a magical mantra in which you actually solicitate the presence of a demonic entity to come and manifest for you and perform, I don't know what, siddhi or paranormal thing for you, maybe then the cloth, the linen, the, this will have some importance because you are talking about low things interacting with low things. But if you meditate with Kali and Kali decided to give you grace, the grace of Kali will be unstoppable by a woolen blanket or by a tiger skin or by jokes like those. That is why, again, this is very orientative 
and people who are more rational, they have simply said that this is for insulating from the dampness of the earth, from keeping some bugs and some worms away. It's a sort of a more of a hygiene, exactly like in Geranda Samhita, where it says, plaster the floor of your hut with a mixture of clay and cow dung, which of course the first three days would smell really nasty, but of course when it dries up, the smell is not so pungent anymore. But it's not because the magical properties of the cow dung, it's simply because it's known in India that a floor made of cow assorted with, I'm sorry, of clay assorted with cow dung is inimical to bugs. And in a tropical climate, you have all sorts of centipedes, cockroaches, and all sorts of stuff which can come in a simple habitation that is in the jungle. In the same way, this story with a seat of made of cloth, skin, kusha grass or some grass, the kusha grass being the most frequent of that climate, of that area, is simply more like a hygienical, ecological thing, rather than ascribing to it some magical properties. It's like a sort of an orgone generator of Wilhelm Reich, and if you don't put the metal and the polystyrene correctly, you don't get orgone energy or something. There are people who unfortunately push it to this level that you need to have a skin, but, and really, believe me, there are yogis in India who contributed to the destruction of many ecosystems. They are gurus, and the richer they are and the more influent they are, the more they can pay for this. Every guru that comes to a big meeting at the Kumbha Mela brings with them at least a leopard skin, if not a tiger skin. That means there is a lot of poaching and hunting just to put under the holy ass of some Baba a tiger skin because it's written in some text. Come on, leave the tigers alone. You know, it's like it's a protected species these days. Leave the tiger alone and meditate on a simple piece of hemp or linen or something. It's not that meditating on a tiger skin generates I don't know what magic. Most of this is superstition. And again, when you are doing some magical things, there I can admit that in some situations, not in all of them, a little bit of trimming of the environment can be important, such as you invoke a spirit pertaining to Venus and you want to wear a lot of copper on your body because copper is astrologically the metal which resonates with the planet Venus and the Venusian spirit will feel good in the presence of copper with you wearing copper. That can be admitted, that's why do not think that I say that the radionic and parapsychological things are not valid, but not really in a meditation like that of Krishna where Krishna describes a meditation for emancipation, for enlightenment. You cannot reach nirvana because you haven't got a deer skin. It's much better to leave the deers alone to live their lives and you meditate anyway. If you don't have a skin, you use other things. So this was the second shloka defining mysteriously a lot of details about the place in a clean spot with a firm seat of his own, neither too high or not too low, made of a cloth, a skin, and kusha grass, one over the other, stacked one upon the other. And then he continues. We are moving to the strophe number 12. There, having made the mind one-pointed, like sitting on this seat with grass and everything, having made the mind one-pointed, the ekagrata, that means like trataka, you think about one thing. He doesn't yet say which one that is. There, having made the mind one-pointed, like you focus on a mantra, you focus on the crown chakra, you focus on a dot on the wall and that, with the actions of the mind and senses controlled, he again brings this up because that's one of the major pitfalls in meditation, as we'll see, seated on the seat, let him seated on the seat, practice yoga for the purification of the self. He comes back 
to his old statement because he said, let a, let a yogi purify his lower self by his higher self, using the higher self as a model, as an archetype, start transforming your ego, your lower self, so it becomes harmonious and spiritualized like the higher self. That's what he means to do, so this is a technique for elevating, for purifying the lower self, for going towards the higher self. So he says, there, having the mind one, made the mind one-pointed, again, it does, he doesn't really say on what, but of course it's on the task at hand, with the actions of the mind and senses, with the activity of the senses and mind, subdued, controlled, because, again, you are having a bad digestion, you are having a memory of some event from last morning, and then your mind starts producing weeds. Your mind, because of the wishful thinking, starts bringing up lots of garbage, which in your meditation you take as a result of the meditation. But it's not a result, it's just collateral garbage, which you have to dismiss. How do you know? This is exactly what Viveka is. Viveka is the discrimination between the real and the unreal, the important and the unimportant. There is a certain capability of Ajna Chakra which makes you able to see that this is important and this is unimportant being just some garbage produced by my mind. And that's why he insisted in the number 11 and he insists, oh, I'm sorry, in the number 10, and he insists again in the number 12, saying with the actions, with the activity of the mind and senses subdued, controlled, like do not be prone to hallucinations and all sorts of wishful thinking. That requires a preparation. You must have done some more of this before you start doing this technique. You cannot be an absolute beginner when you do this. So he says, sitting there on the seat, having the may, made the mind one-pointed with the activity and the senses and thoughts subdued, let him practice yoga for self-purification. Self-purification, you cannot purify the higher self because that's perfect already. The only self which can be purified is the lower self, the ego. So he says, focusing, let the yogi with the mind controlled and everything go into yoga for self-purification. But he didn't still say, where do you focus and what is this yoga for self-purification? He will give some more details as we go further. He just takes it step by step, bit by bit. So by now, he has defined the whole setting. There is a whole setting with the kusha grass, with a clean place, with a detached frame of mind, where you make your mind one-pointed, control the mind and the senses. It's a whole setting. There are so many conditions, which of course makes this a more advanced practice. You practice it for a year, two years, then you start becoming good at it. In the beginning, for most beginners, trying to do such an abstract thing looks almost hopeless, like I don't even really know where to start from or what is involved in this. And then the shloka number 13 again comes with nice practical details. He says, let him firmly hold his body, like being steady. Here, for example, Krishna does not accept too much phenomena like we have in Kundalini Yoga, when people's body is shuddering or shaking or sometimes rocking or swinging because of the energy movements. This is not an energy practice, a Kundalini Yoga. This is a very dry Vedantic practice and therefore here Krishna says, steady. Like you meditate and your body becomes like a rock. You are just like frozen in it. So, firmly holding the body, steady, with the head and neck erect and perfectly still, upright and still, which is a fundamental condition in meditation, that the neck, the head, they should, the body, neck, head, they should be on one straight line. There exist meditations 
in which people are asked to go a little bit backwards for producing some energy effects in this energy center in the lower back of the head. There are techniques like some of the Tibetan Mahamudra where people put their neck a little bit down into a semi Jalandharabandha and they look down so they have again not a straight line. But of course when you look at Buddha meditation postures you always see Buddha with the head, neck, spine, one straight line. Here Krishna follows the same methodology, the same system. So with the body steady, with the head and neck upright and perfectly still, gazing at the tip of his nose without looking around. That's the very definition of Trataka. And actually here, Krishna uses in Sanskrit the very word Nasikagra. Nasikagra Drishti is focusing on the tip of the nose, is one of the fundamental forms of Trataka. It's a very well-known technique and it is very interesting that Krishna uses it here because Nasika, Nasikagra Drishti, the nasal Trataka, is not the most spiritual form of Trataka. Like Brumadhya Drishti, the focusing in the forehead, it's considered more spiritual. But, and in the previous, in the chapter number five, Krishna was actually talking about focusing on the forehead. But here Krishna basically describes a posture of meditation and all the rest, and the yogi is focusing at the tip of the nose. However, there is a translation, in the translation made by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to this text, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi prefers to say, having directed his gaze in front of his nose. Nasikagra does not, it's ambiguous in Sanskrit, and Nasikagra being written way before the Hatha Yoga texts, this text being written so much before, Nasikagra literally means focusing the gaze in front of the nose. But the nose is this long, and that means you can focus your gaze here, but you can also focus your gaze here, and that's also in front of the nose. It's in front of the upper part of the root of the nose, not of the base of the nose. That is why this shloka has a double entendre, which is meant to be clarified by a guru. To just do this meditation so elaborately described, we control over the mind and everything, and then to focus it all just by looking at the tip of the nose, the tip of the nose produces some resonances with Muladhara Chakra, with Kundalini Shakti, and the Trataka, the concentrations on the tip of the nose, they do have the advantage that they calm down the mind and they give stability, which maybe it is what Krishna wants, but if you want more than just stability and uh, calming down, then you want to focus higher to direct the energy towards Ajna Chakra. That's why here Krishna, I would say on purpose, is ambiguous, this being able, or this one being able to do this in two ways. So gazing at the tip of the nose without looking around. That's the very definition of Trataka, that you stare and you are not looking at anything else, and that is of course what is involved here. And now, in the number 14, he describes the contents. See, this has taken already four verses, five now, and it describes piece by piece the preliminary conditions, the position, the position of the body, and all that. And here is what the shloka number 14 has to add to this. Serene-minded, fearless, firm in the vow of Brahmacharya, having controlled the mind, again, it's the third time mentioned, thinking of me and balanced in mind, let him sit, having me as his supreme goal. 
Maharishi Mahesh Yogi translates in a slightly different way and this enriches the meaning. He says, with his being deep in peace, it's the same, with serenity, freed from fear, fearless, settled in the vow of chastity, brahmacharya, practicing brahmacharya, with the mind subdued, that is controlling the mind, and the thought given over to me, thinking over to me, said Shivananda, let him sit united, let him sit balanced, united, Shivananda was saying balanced in mind, let him sit, having me as supreme goal, says Shivananda, realizing me as the transcendent, says Maharishi. Both of them are the same. If you take the interpretation of Swami Shivananda, Shivananda says this meditation is that the yogi fulfilling all that long line of conditions and being serene, fearless, we'll get back into that in a second, the yogi should sit having me a supreme goal. Like the yogi sits, focuses wherever, looks into the blankness, into the tip of the nose or something, and the yogi feels Krishna, 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 Vishnu, Vishnu, God, you are my goal, Krishna, 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 his word, his idea being, I want to be one with Krishna, I am one with Krishna. It's a sort of a longing, it's a sort of an aspiration, it's a sort of a samyama, as it is called in yoga, which means an identification, that you think of something so much until you start identifying with something. Here, Krishna says, thinking of me, like this is, this has always been the line, the, the preferred line of the theistic religions, that sometimes you can have a manifested symbolic form of the divine. Like you have never seen Nirvana, but you can see Buddha Gautama. Gautama Buddha, the historical Buddha of whom there are so many statues across the world, Buddha is a symbol of Nirvana because Buddha entered in Nirvana. So if you identify to Buddha and Buddha is in Nirvana, the friend of my friend is my friend. It's just a logical transitivity. If you look at Jesus, you see God. If you look at Krishna, you see God. And that's a sort of transition, transitivity, because you are focusing on something like, I can't see God, because God is spirit. And spirit is everywhere and nowhere and can't be seen. But I can see Jesus who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I and my Father are one and the same. And therefore, by seeing Jesus, I see God. The same tenet exists in Hinduism, in Vaishnava Hinduism for the case here, with Krishna. You see Krishna, you see God. In Buddhism it's a bit more, it's a bit more discreet because there is not this concept of a personal God, but the idea is still the same. You see Buddha, you see Nirvana because Buddha is in Nirvana and his body is just like a yantra, a mandala, a symbol of Nirvana. Also, not only the full statue, but as you know, the Buddhists have these images where you see the feet of the Buddha. It's not even enough to see all of Buddha, just the feet of Buddha. The same thing is with Vishnu, Vishnupada, the feet of Vishnu. You don't need to see Vishnu. You just see two footprints, which are the footprints of God. And the footprint, you see the footprints of God, you see God. Because your subconscious mind creates a resonance by transitivity, since you know that those footprints belong to God. In the same way, in India, they worship the feet of the Guru, like great yogis, like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, although he was famous and rich and everything, still in his books, his consecration is to the lotus feet of my guru, Swami Brahmananda Sarasvati, at whose feet I saw the light. This is borrowed from this mentality that you see the feet of Buddha, you see the feet of Vishnu, 
you see even the feet of the Guru. If your Guru is an enlightened being, the feet of the Guru are like a mandala of enlightenment. They are like a mandala of nirvana. In some yoga tradition, this goes so far that the disciples are saluting the shoes of the Guru. The Indian Gurus, they go with some very peculiar sandals made of wood, some sort of special shoes. I'm sure you've seen them, you've been in India. And people, if the Guru is not there, they bow down to the shoes of the Guru. And after the Guru is dead, they keep the shoes. You can still go to Rishikesh and see the shoes of Swami Shivananda. Only that Swami Shivananda for the other people, not for his followers, was a heretic, the bastard. Because he didn't use wooden sandals as a decent guru is supposed to. Swami Shivananda, the bugger, he was wearing shoes, western shoes. Can you imagine the heresy of it? But of course the disciples of Swami Shivananda, they keep the shoes. If you go in the room of Shivananda, you see the shoes of Swami Shivananda, which are worshipful, worshipful for them. Narrow-minded, fanatical, sectarian people, they say, no, Swami Shivananda, by doing shoes, he has disqualified himself. Where are the good old wooden sandals that any decent guru would wear? That is hypocrisy. That is histrionism, theatrical, ridiculous, stupid thing. It's not about that only wooden shoes would do. It's that you, the shoes are a symbol of the feet of the Guru, and the feet of the Guru are like the feet of Buddha, or like the feet of God, the feet of Krishna, or the feet of Vishnu in India, and therefore it's all that. And thus, now coming back to our shloka, it's a consecration. Krishna says, having me a supreme goal, just focus on nothing. What do you focus on? single-minded, make his mind one-pointed, said he in shloka number 12. One-pointed on what? The shloka number 14 finally clarifies, having his mind one-pointed on the idea, on the feeling that I, Krishna, am God, and he just should think only of me. And I think the interpretation of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi also adds some additional meaning here because it says, let him sit united, balanced, realizing me as the transcendent. Like, of course, Krishna says, some people can look to me and say, this Krishna is a womanizer, a fornicator, a manipulator and an asshole. And some people can look at Krishna and say, this Krishna is God. This Krishna is the transcendent. If you look upon Krishna as garbage, you will get garbage. According to the Tibetan dictum which says, you consider your guru an enlightened being, there is the blessing coming from a Buddha. You consider your guru a very powerful siddha, you get a blessing from a siddha, which is less than the blessing from an enlightened being. You consider your guru to just be a scholar, you will get almost no blessing because a scholar has no power to bless. You will get a little bit of a scholar's blessing. You consider your guru a Mr. Nobody, a Tom, Dick and Harry, then there is no blessing. The Tibetans simply say, it depends on what you make of the image of your choice, of your concentration. You can meditate on Krishna and Shiva until you turn blue. If you consider Shiva nothing, if you consider Krishna a dude, then there will be no blessing, no transfiguration, no sublimation, no reaching of the transcendent. It is the intent which you put in it which defines the effect. So here, slowly, slowly, Krishna has built up a wonderful method. Sitting in this way and in that way, with the mind control, like no hallucination, and this all the time, being balanced, doing brahmacharya. He says, serene-minded, like one should not be angry during such a meditation, one should not get dark, 
serene-minded, light-minded, and fearless. Why fearless? Because as you will see, meditation takes you in some of the labyrinths of the mind and you may see some dragons. There be, there be dragons in some parts of our mind. So being ready to confront everything, fearless, serene, not with anger or with darkness or with revenge or with anything, with brahmacharya, because if you don't do brahmacharya, you'll fall asleep and you'll be flabby in your meditation and you'll not have the necessary ojas for having the quantum leap with the mind discipline and with, with the thinking of me, thinking of Krishna, God, Krishna as God, as avatara of God, as manifestation of God, as incarnation of God, as image of God. Thinking of Krishna, let him sit balanced, united, having me as his supreme goal or realizing me as the transcendent. This is basically a beautiful meditation on God, using Krishna as a messenger of God, as an image of God, as a support for the meditation, as a doorway towards God. And of course, the same principle can be used with Jesus. The same principle can be used with Shiva. The same principle can be used with other concrete images, which are supposed, pay attention, not with every concrete image, but with any concrete image which is supposed to be a direct representation of the divine under one of its forms. Otherwise, it is indirect. But of course, they do it with Buddha and with the feet of Buddha. They do it with the gurus and with the feet of the gurus and with the sandals of the gurus and all that. And uh, therefore, it is very much a matter of how you put your faith into it. So as you can see, this is not really a technology which is very precise because you don't concentrate on a dot on the wall. You concentrate on Krishna as God. That's a pretty abstract concentration. Krishna does not say he should have a painting of me or a mandala of me and do tratakoni. No, he says he should focus in front of his nose, whatever that means, on the tip of the nose or somewhere. Yeah. And while being like this, he should focus that I am God. Exactly like the statement from the Bible, which says, be still and know that I am God. That expresses a meditation technique, right? This sentence from the Old Testament is just a very abstract meditation. Be still and know that I am God. And even that has a double entendre because know that I am God or know that I am God. It goes in both ways. And that is why... Of course, this is a wonderful technique, but unfortunately for the needs of the people of Kali Yuga, it's a little bit too fluffy, it's a little bit too abstract, it needs a little bit more flesh, it needs something more concrete to be made to really work for a person in need of technology and something concrete. And he concludes in, with the effects of this, in the shloka number 15 by saying, thus, thus means, as it has been said, even thus, so it obviously refers to the number 14, 13, 12, thus doing all that thing which, was, which took five strophes to define, thus always keeping the mind balanced, as you can see how obsessively he works, he insists on this, having the mind balanced. Like the easiest thing which can happen in such a flimsy, such a thin meditation, which is so easy to lose out of control because it's very imponderable. You don't really rely on anything. Like if somebody takes a piece of glass 
like the guru of Ramakrishna did and plucks it between your, in the forehead and you get an unbearable wound and pain and stuff and your guru says, focus in this point, that's not superfluous. There is nothing abstract or flimsy about that meditation because you are simply pierced in your forehead and there is pain and blood coming out of there and you are focusing on something very, very precise. But be still and know that I am God. It's a very abstract meditation. And because of this, the risk that your mind, your imagination, your wishful thinking should start dragging you through the labyrinth of the mind and you either think that you have visions or whatever else happens, it's very big. That's why this kind of meditation works on the background of many years sometimes of prior yoga education and this is a meditation which they do in Kriya Yoga again but they do it as advanced stages of Kriya Yoga simply because you, have, you should have practiced something more concrete before that. So, thus always keeping the mind balanced, the yogi with the mind controlled, again and again and again and again, attains to the peace abiding in me, which culminates in liberation. He says two levels, the yogi fulfilling this, Focusing on me, Krishna. Krishna says, I shall give him peace. He attains the peace which culminates in liberation. Peace is not yet the same with liberation. The peace in Kashmiri Shaivism is called Chitta Vishranti, the appeasement of the mind. And that's just the beginning. That's the accomplishment of the Anavopaya, of the path of the individual, as it is called in Kashmiri Shaivism. And it gives a sort of Samadhi, it gives a sort of spiritual realization, but it is not the final liberation. And that's why he says, he attains to the peace abiding in me, which culminates in liberation. After how long time does it culminate in liberation? Here Krishna doesn't matter. He says you attain to peace, you abide in God, or as Jesus would say, you are in the kingdom of God, and then you have reached perfection, emancipation, the absolute consciousness, moksha or mukti, the supreme liberation. As you can see, there are discreetly outlined here some levels. Even thus collecting himself, the yogi of disciplined mind attains to peace, the supreme liberation that abides in me. So therefore, in both the cases, Krishna describes this is a technique for attaining liberation. Be still and know that I am God. But the Hindu version, the Vaishnava Hindu version of it, which is focus on Krishna as God sitting on a seat made of kusha grass and deer skin and all that, which of course realize it will not prevent Krishna from being omnipotent God if you don't have a seat built according to all the rules of Indian dwelling. Always take it with a pinch of salt. There are many religious statements which are always dependent on the geographical, climatic, ethnic, cultural, religious environment where they are written. For example, the Tibetan yogis are using different seats for meditation because when you live 4,000 meters high in the Himalayas and in the Tibetan plateau, it's very difficult to find reindeers to be hunted. Even the cloth is sometimes a luxury and a commodity. And definitely the kusha grass is something which grows in tropical India, not in alpine Tibetan habitat. And because of that, therefore, always realize that many of those things can be filtered as secondary, while some of them, such as keep the head, neck and spine upright and straight, that's, that's a non-negotiable thing, that's really part of the technique, that's really important. So, 
This was the effect. By doing that, the yogi reaches peace, dwells in God, attains, culminates in liberation. In the tradition to which Ramakrishna Paramahamsa belonged, they believe that this state of peace, which is a nirvikalpa samadhi, has to be maintained non-stop for 72 hours, three days and three nights, then it culminates into liberation. Thus, you have a measure of it that there are some thresholds, there are some stages to this process. And we are going to stop here today, both because we started almost in time, which means we had a good time to run and I don't want to overload you, and also because for these three days we have this background of jamming sounds, which are due to the festival, which I advise you to attend tomorrow, or maybe even tonight you catch a bit of it. It's a very picturesque event happening once a year, every year, in our community here in our zone. But coming back to thing, we stopped with the strophe number 15. Next time we continue with number 16. And I hope that in one satsang or maximum two, I shall reach to the end of chapter 6. And then we will take the decision about the things which will be done in the satsang. What spiritual text or tradition I shall comment for you in further on in our satsangs during this season. As we used to do after every such discourse, let us remain in silent meditation for two, three minutes, simply for the purpose of calming down the subconscious mind, introspection and insight, allowing to some of the things which you heard and listened to tonight to go a little bit deeper to become part of your reality. So a bit of silent meditation to conclude this, after which we will part for tonight. And that will do. With this we finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you. We'll continue in our next satsang next week. <laughs>